The dawn of civilization. Primitive. Dangerous. Exciting. The handwriting is on the wall. If the human race is ever going to amount to anything, it needs... The most civilized caveman I have ever seen. Ah, look who's come out of his cave. Hey everyone, this is James from Cave Dweller Music. I am flying solo today. Brendan is not here, but I do have Shelly from Hate Meditations and Jason, aka Lone Goat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, appreciate you taking the time. It's going to be great talking with you. Chime in, but uh, um, thanks for having us. It's uh, uh, an invasion from Necropolis happening today. So, Necropolis is a, a podcast that Shelly and I co host together. And, you know, we've been doing it for about two years now. Over two years, I would say, and uh, lots of interesting conversations and guests, and um, it's helped uh, broaden my own understanding of extreme music um, by doing the podcast, by you know having so many discussions with so many different individuals from all walks of life. So um, it's great to actually cross paths here and kind of have like you know two different music podcasts kind of converging together in one discussion go ahead Shelley. i was i mean i think you've said it all really i was just going to say yeah thanks very much for having us on looking forward to chatting awesome um shelly for anyone who's not sort of familiar with your site uh what is sort of like the core ethos of uh, hate meditations what is the focus of the website um painfully pedantic but uh honest reviews um i started out um, back in 2017, just as a way to organize some thoughts, really informal, didn't really think about any ever sort of getting a readership, just mm-hmm. general essays on various trends I'd noticed in metal, various ideas that I have focusing on extreme metal, particularly black metal, because that's my forte. Um, then I started sort of doing historical reviews of like classic releases, normally like taking two albums from a similar era and style and sort of comparing and contrasting them to see like, you know, their different interpretations of a particular style. Um, and that kind of, that was a series of articles that built up a little bit of momentum. Um, and then about 2019, I started diving into the hectic world of reviewing new albums. Um, I said when I started out, I didn't want to do that because keeping on top of new releases can be a bit daunting at times. Um, and as it's kind of grown from there, I, I do sort of try and keep up a regular churn of new reviews. Um, and it's more just what I what I imagine I would like to read from other reviewers. Like there's lots of great metal writing out there at the moment, but it was really me just trying to raise the standards of some um, discourse on metal because I thought that some of it was too superficial, didn't really go deep enough, and also wasn't honest enough at times. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with being critical when when you're coming from a place of um, being constructive about it. Um, yes. Not that I always meet my own standards, but yeah. And since then, I've just kind of churned out more random essays and yeah, just kept up with, with new releases and stuff. And um, yeah, that's how Hate Meditations got started and how it's grown over the last few years. Awesome. Love to see that. And then you formed a partnership, obviously, with uh, Jason's blog. How, how did that partnership come to be? Um, it was during the, during the pandemic. So my like rate of writing new articles obviously increased exponentially during that time um because we didn't have anything to do and uh jason um just stumbled across my blog i think it was again as it tends to happen on sort of underground metal circles it was like 
a friend of a friend of a friend shared a link or I might have reviewed a band that was friends with Jason. And at this time, Jason was thinking about starting his own podcast again um, as a way to sort of reconnect with friends across the scene because obviously no one could go anywhere. Um, and yeah, he had me on as a guest in one of the very early episodes um, just as he was sort of getting, finding his feet as a podcaster. And um, yeah, we got on so well that I basically became an informal co-host, slightly more formal now. Um, and yeah, we've basically been chatting ever since, um, both online and, and offline. He came to the UK last year and we um, got smashed for about a week. <laughs> but yeah, that's when we formalized the Necropolis partnership as well. Very nice. Um, and I know that you've done some YouTube video stuff, some like uh, stuff that's specifically YouTube based that's sort of investigative or looking at trends or history. Um, what, what are the fo- what's the focus of those episodes? Um, it's still a work in progress because um, I'm not sort of adept at the skills that you need to be a YouTuber. I um the sort of the video editing the technical side of it so much so initially i just created the youtube channel um to upload new episodes of necropolis but i thought i could maybe grow the platform out a little bit and sort of expand on some of the things that i do on hate meditations because although i I love writing and i love the written word as like a medium for communicating especially about music i kind of wanted to create a more informal kind of um forum for analysis bit you know also just be a bit silly at times and it was really just me kind of splurging my ideas into the camera on um like classic metal albums and where they fit within like the hierarchy and the history of metal and you know occasionally being deliberately antagonistic uh deliberately trying to sort of prod various kind of sacred cows that metal kind of has about itself Mm. um and yeah just really sort of create a different a different angle on a lot of that and i think you know obviously with the visual medium you kind of you get a bit more space to be creative whereas with writing um obviously you can be very creative with writing but you're sort of limited to what you can do with a wall of text and it's yeah. not for everybody some people prefer like the visual medium um so yeah I, it's kind of as i said it's kind of taken a bit of a hiatus at the moment because i'm i'm a new father so i'm sort of juggling obviously that with a full-time job and trying to keep up with reviews so i haven't really had a chance to build on that but i'm hoping to sort of get through the history of heavy metal i've kind of hit about 1980 at this point and i'm sort of introducing punk um as part of the equation but i'm hoping to get onto sort of the classic early 80s albums by that point and just really really poke the bear as far as like um having some provocative opinions about some of those albums but yeah (laughs) yeah you're gonna be uh Kicking the hornet's nest in that area. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Jason, your podcast, do you want to tell us a little bit about Necropolis and how that came to be? So it was born from quarantine, from COVID-19, as so many other things were. Um, So with that, Mm. I I just figured I saw a lot of other people doing podcasts. And I'm like, well, I know a shit ton of people. It's like I could, you know, interview all these different people and see what they're all about. And, you know amplify um, them to uh, uh, an audience so I went ahead and I started uh, I would say like the first like 10 I was still getting used to podcasting 10 episodes um, I think Shelly I, mm-hmm. I, I interviewed Shelly for the fifth episode 
um, because of how prolific he was on the hate meditations. And we're both children of the anus. Um, so anus knows anus. Um, so uh, uh, we really, we really, you know, hit it off on his episode. We started just going like this nonstop. I'm like, well, this guy would be you know, a great co-host. And um, I, as a guest, he was a guest co-host for a while. And then I was like, well, why don't you just, you know, be part of the podcast moving forward. Um, and then, you know, pretty much sealed the deal when I went to England last year um, and hung out with them and, just to ensure that, you know, moving forward, this, you know, this good, healthy relationship that we have. And we know where each other stand in regard to, you know, the podcast and all that. So, you know, we're on the same page. I will say that there have been some interesting episodes. Um, um, we've been doing uh, not necessarily roundtables because we tried doing roundtables early on. And the listenership on some of those roundtables never got above 100 listens. And that's cross-platform. That's with Spotify, YouTube, Apple yeah. Music, and all that. But uh, once we started doing, like, the focus episodes, which is essentially a roundtable, um, but on one specific topic. So we do, like, a deep dive on, you know, like, last one we did was on Norwegian black metal. And I, I know all the guys really enjoyed chatting about that. And I, I found that if it's a focus episode, it tends to do a lot better um, with the listenership. Um, so it's still not, you know, a huge podcast or anything. It's average, you know, two to 400 uh, listens per episode, which is better than mm-hmm. some. But, you know, obviously there's way bigger podcasts out there. Um, right. But um, we, yeah, we definitely uh, have a large enough audience to keep going, in my opinion. And we're open to all kinds of different things. So I know uh, we had Boyd Rice on. And even though Boyd Rice isn't metal or classical, um you know, we had him on and him and Shelly clashed and it was really entertaining. Like Boyd Rice wrote a, a, a critique on Instagram. He later deleted it, by the way. Um, but he, he wasn't too thrilled <laughs> with his encounter with Shelly. I've never been more proud. He described, he described me as a doctrinaire Marxist. Um, that was a, a real proud moment for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think as well, just to add to what you were saying, Jason, um, Although the listenership is small, and this is this is going to sound a little bit pretentious, but I think people come to us for a slightly deeper dive, um, a slightly more analytical or in-depth chat. So like the, the band focuses we've done, we've done sort of Baffery, Morbid Angel, um, Mayhem and Slayer, sort of the bands with rich histories that you can mm. really sort of get, sink your teeth into. And there's about four or five of us that will kind of get into that. So, you know, there's plenty of podcasts out there that will do you know, some casual chat and a roundup of like recent releases that people have been digging and maybe a couple of interviews or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's a great format that has its place. But for us, we do do interviews, but they tend to be much more like in depth and you, you probably need to be into whichever artists you're interviewing to sort of get anything from it. But yeah, mm-hmm. when we do a round table chat about a, an artist that everyone knows really well, I think it does resonate because it, it gets under the skin of, of that artist. And we, we all have a different, kind of perspective and a different angle and you know don't always agree but we always have a good kind of um cordial discussion about it and i think i think that has its place within kind of the metal podcast kind of little corner of the internet definitely and i think the thing is like you're getting a response from people whether they support or are against what you're saying but either way there's some sort of emotional buy-in which is always going to have an audience that sticks with you and comes back for more yeah absolutely and um 
I think it, I think it's those levels of disagreement that um, actually kind of chime people more. If we if we were all just sitting around saying yeah this band is awesome or whatever it wouldn't be very entertaining but sometimes particularly jason and i will have a different take on a particular album or a particular era of a band and then it's, it's quite interesting to see how the discussion unfolds because it's not just um a sort of surface level kind of celebration of a particular artist although we do you know we do lavish praise on like you know bands like morbid angel or whatever because um for obvious reasons but yeah there are yeah. there are some corners where we'll we'll have a a little sort of tangent and just not come to blows but have quite a heated disagreement on something but i think uh that's that's kind of where it sort of sometimes differs from other podcasts right and i think something that you don't even take into account when you do stuff like that is you're going to get uh, what i call them hate shares so you have people that would like <laughs> uh, hear your opinion and be like send it to their friend immediately and be like check out what this asshole is saying about but you know <laughs> and and then they'll share into some of those and you have this whole chain of new listeners and you like they're angry at you, but they're actually boosting your your uh, your numbers. Well, this yeah. is this is so on the on the non podcast side of my YouTube channel, where it's just me yelling at the camera about different bands. The one the video that got the most hits was me basically saying that Mayhem weren't all that important as musically as far as black metal is concerned. And I make the point that like Euronymous was far better as like an organizer and an administrator of the Norwegian scene than he was a musician compared to his peers. And obviously, like I did, like a clickbaity, clickbaity title, and was a little bit um, dismissive with my language in the video. I, I kind of played into the what you're supposed to do with generating clicks or whatever. But it did yeah. suddenly spike in viewers and comments of everyone just saying, "You don't know what you're talking about, man." Like, <laughs> it's just yeah, I, I didn't want that kind of, you know hate share or whatever but yeah that seems to be what i generated by accident so i i call that the uh metal sucks approach yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> it's like 80 percent of their articles yeah we also did uh two episodes of slaughtering sacred cows we'll probably do a third one so it's like mm -hmm. overrated bands that we just wanted to kind of chime in on why um you know they're essentially cows ready for the slaughter um and those have been really fun, and they, they did have a good reception with the listenership. And it, James, like you were saying, it's like, yeah, I could definitely see, you know, like, you know, Cannibal Corpse, for instance. I think they were brought up one time, and, you know, it'd be funny if, like, they heard it and passed it on to their friends. Like, oh, these guys are trashing Cannibal Corpse, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, get those hate but those again, the approach we took wasn't just, like, you know, bitching or shitting on them. We took a constructive approach saying... Like, for instance, I, again, I did the clickbait thing where one of my picks was Dark Throne, and I absolutely adore Dark Throne. They've released some of my favorite all-time albums, but I was more just commenting on kind of the ongoing legacy of Dark Throne and the reputation of them. So we, we have like a, a more constructive discussion. It's not just us ranting about bands that everyone loves for the sake of like generating views. And again, obviously the titles, Loring Sake of Cows, and the fact that I put a big picture of Dark Throne on the YouTube thumbnail, yes, we yeah. are we are kind of prodding that, being that provocative. But at the same time, when you actually click into the episode, we do have, you know, quite a uh, sort of reasoned discussion on some of these artists, and you know, some of their legacies are conflicted. There's good and bad things about some of these bands that have been around for a few years. So, yeah, right. valid reasons right. to uh, kind of dethrone them, essentially. So. Yeah, we don't just go in there just to throw shade at bands. You know, we usually have a reason um, for, you know, re uh, 
to slaughter the the sacred cow. Um, so yeah, it's not malicious, um, and you know, at the core of it, it's not malicious, but on the exterior, it might be because yeah, we are going for the the hatelessness. Essentially, um, it's like yeah, it's like I hate this band too, and now these guys are you know giving me more reasons to hate this band. So there's plenty of that out there, and Jerry from Scale of Back, that's pretty much what he specializes in. It's just you know, this hate listen. So yeah, it, it can be effective um, for reaching a larger demographic, but still it's like, if everything is a hundred percent negative, then you're kind of missing the mark and probably shouldn't mm. um, be, you know, just continuously posting, you know, negative, negative, negative. And they're not talking about the, the good qualities of the music as well. So yeah, we try right. to take a, a more nuanced approach when we, we do uh, throw some shade at some bands. Uh, just to clarify, I'm not sure if everyone will be familiar with Jerry from Scale It Back, but um, basically if you search on YouTube for Blood Incantation Sucks, um, <laughs> then you can cross a half-hour video of him dissecting a Blood Incantation song and why it sucks. Um, that's kind of the approach that um, we're talking about that we don't necessarily want to do. But mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> And then, uh, Shelly, I'm going to ask you this first because, Jason, I know your answer, but I'll get yours next. Um, are you in any bands of any kind? Um, I was in a band. I'm sort of on a hiatus at the moment, but not not a metal band. I, okay. I play keyboards, um, but I play in a gothic rock band, which is my other sort of non-metal passion, um, aside from, you know, various bits of classical and ambient music and, you know, quite a lot of heavy rock as well. Uh, gothic rock is kind of like the scene that I moved in most um, in the UK in terms of sort of gigs and clubbing and stuff. I sort of orbited goth scene far more than I orbited the metal scene, even though I'm chiefly a metal fan. So yeah, I, I play keyboards in a in a gothic rock band who are just sort of a, a local local band. We play sort of support slots and pub gigs and stuff, uh, trying to sort of get more national attention at the moment. What's the uh, name of the band? We're called uh, Dawn of Elysium. Um, they came up with that name before I joined, but it's essentially an amalgamation of two fields of the Nephilim albums, Dawn Razor and Elysium. Uh, oh, cool. And if I had joined when they were still making the name, I would have come up with something different, but it's stuck and it's on flyers. And by that point, it was too late to change. And it's <laughs> 10 years later, and we're still called Dawn of Elysium. So it's done. <laughs> it's done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then, Jason, I know you're in uh, a couple of different things or have been over the years. Uh, what are you currently playing in? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm, at a, I'm at like a crossroads right now where on uh, one side, because I, I do love classical music a lot, and I'm not saying I, metal and classical are separate. I don't view one as inherently better than the other um, because there's just you know, musical forms of expression. Um but I, I, I joined a classical music cult, as David Hurwitz would say, with the Bruckner Society of America, and I've been attending their functions. And it's great to be around so many musicologists and you know, college professors and um, really uh, talk about um, you know, the music of Bruckner, as well as other composers, really in-depth. And you know things that I haven't discovered on my own that they're able to elaborate on and um, and so there, there's a classical music side where I want to make my own music more sophisticated. Um, but there's also um, mm-hmm. 
kind of like a, the metal and abrasive and dissonant side of my endeavors. But yeah, um, GoCraft had essentially wrapped up. Um, it was a five album concept where um, I had a, the first album was called All For Not Starts With An A, second album starts with a B, etc. And it spells out Abyss. So there was a five album concept. Um, and with that, it's like I'm thinking in the future what I well, I'll probably do with GoCraft, and I probably should change the name, honestly, but uh, um, it's to record on my acoustic grand piano and really um, focus on composition a lot more because the, the GoCraft, I think only a few of those pieces would hold up under, like, true scrutiny um, because I would say I, I went into a very feral um, and – uh, the song constructions and all that. I mean, I do conform to Western harmony and all that, but um, I, I would say it's in between like soundtrack music and, you know, like classical music or, you know, sophisticated music It's in between. And I want to push it more to the sophisticated side. Um, so there's that. Um, I'm still at the crossroads of go craft. And um, then there's the, uh, the, the gnome stuff. <laughs> which started as a joke and still remains as a joke. Um, but I, I do have fun doing it, um, you know, fanning the flames of the nerd of a dungeon synth. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's been really fun doing that. Just, you know, release after release, not really giving a fuck about, you know, what people think about it. And the music's very simplistic compared to the, the goat craft. Um, but what I do in the garden gnome is I do uh, put a lot more emphasis on uh, modulating. So the especially the last you know three or four garden gnomes, there's a lot more modulating going on. And so in that aspect, I am learning a little bit more about you know modulating, um, but you know shifting from one key to another. Um, the garden gnome started as a, a joke um, during. The, uh, the pandemic where I saw like there was hot dog sense and various other <laughs> kinds of really, uh, really idiotic, I would say idiotic types of dungeon sense. And the bar was really, really low with the dungeon sense. Um, so I decided, screw it. I'll just, you know, create a little silly fucking dungeon sense project. And immediately it came to me and it's like, why don't you call it garden gnome? Um, because, um, I had always kind of viewed the uh, the the music of summoning as a little gnomish, so I immediately went to the garden gnome, um, and I came out with true Norwegian dungeon sense, and that actually performed really well. I actually sent that to Mortis as well. Um, he never responded; he left me on scene, but I just kept churning out the the garden gnomes, just recording it right on the spot. Um, you know, record like 11 tracks in one day. I know it's really shitty practice to do, but I was having fun with it. And it was a lot of humor injected in it. So I would say uh, once I started using uh, the MIDI drums, that's when the project got a little bit more sophisticated, but it's still really lowbrow cave dweller stuff. So uh, yeah, and there's been a lot of tomfoolery. I love the uh, the level of detail that you go into with the law on each album as well. I think that's a big part of why people enjoy it. Yeah, I started doing that with uh, the uh, more recent releases. 
because I know like some dude came up with a list of what makes Dungeon Synth Dungeon Synth, and one of the aspects mm-hmm. is lore. So I started mm-hmm. doing little write ups and all that, and I think it started with a true or not true Norwegian um, Norwegian Soviet Socialist Republics. The one with the hammer and sickle on the cover with the no, uh-huh. yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that one, that one spread like wildfire. Um, of course, you know, it's, and uh, you know, really funny stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, um, that's pretty much it. This garden gnome is, it could be better if I spent more time on it, and I know some people they kind of shake their heads like well you could have made this better put in more effort more work make it something that you're truly proud of but i'm proud of it like uh i just have fun with it and it's the process that i'm really enjoying so whether it rots you know obscurity i don't really care um but yeah that's the uh the... i love about this is talking about go craft or even just seeing jason play piano like he's a virtuoso piano player like He's um, classically like adept, and you can hear that on GoCraft, but also you can you see it whenever Jason posts a video of him playing piano. Mm-hmm. And then you have this Dungeon Synth project that started as a joke, sort of slash meme, but it's been going on again, yeah, since 2020. And as you mentioned, like the law keeps expanding, keep branching out into different aspects of like fantasy or politics or philosophy. Like the latest one is centered around Hegel and stuff. And it's like, because Jason's from Texas and I'm from Leeds, I'm not quite sure if he's joking or not um, when he takes it this far. It's like, has the joke stopped and it started becoming a sincere project or not? Or is it just a joke that's like really, really, really well played out? <laughs> but people pay money for it. People, you know, pay for the downloads on Bandcamp. It's got like coming out on cassette. Um, yeah. I just love that it's been taken this far and it looks like a genuine Dungeon Synth project at this point. And it's as good as you know some of the new dungeon synth projects so yeah i found right. out a lot of the the people in dungeon synth bands they don't actually know how to play an instrument it's all just you know clicking with their mouse and uh audacity or whatever and uh yep and so it's not really true you know like musical backing to their projects and so what i do is you know i, I have keyboards so i have a core triton and a core chronos I, I record straight from the keyboards, but not, I use a metronome to throw the drums in afterwards. But uh, yeah, it's all coming straight from my keyboards. I've never, well, the only time I've ever messed with like MIDI music was on a, that split GoCraft with the Plutonian Shore. That was just my uh-huh. first experience with uh, the uh, the MIDI um, sounds. And I thought it was a really tedious project. It's like, I, I, I could have made the music on keyboard so much faster than, you know, I, I had like a MIDI keyboard too, but just trying to clean it up and getting the sounds the way I wanted them to sound, it was, it was very tedious. So I prefer to actually just whip out a keyboard and play on it. Right. Yeah, I think it sort of gives the music a different sort of feel to it. Like, a, I don't know, it plays out, you can tell when it, when someone's done it that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess so, um, but, but MIDI can sound really convincing. I know, like even with uh, notation software, they can do like plugins, and there's like a Berliner Philharmoniker plugin where the the orchestra sound very real. And so, yeah, there is a 
a very convincing sound coming from MIDI nowadays. You know, 20 years ago, anyone could tell if it was MIDI, but nowadays it's really blurring the lines. But yeah, I definitely prefer to physically use my fingers to create music rather than pointing, you know, for a mouse and clicking and moving things around. So that's my preference. But yeah, the Dungeon Synth, there's a, a great deal of those guys who don't really know how to play music, but they're really adept at, you know, organizing MIDI files and, you know, dumping stuff and organizing, cutting and pasting and all that. So, Okay, so I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent into Dungeon Synth, but this is one of the reasons why I find it fascinating because, you know, that that's what people used to say about punk rock is that, it was almost like a rebellion against 70s progressive music because that was becoming too technical and too esoteric. So it's like, let's bring it back to basics. You don't need to know how to play guitar. You just need to learn a couple of chords. Everything's in 4-4, whatever. Plug in and go. And the thing I love about Dungeon Synth from a sort of you know philosophical point of view rather than necessarily a musical one is just it is very DIY. It's very kind of anyone can anyone with a you know broadband connection and a laptop can start a dungeon synth project in theory. And I really mm -hmm. like that democratic aspect to it in that it's very, the ratio of listeners to creators is very, very high as well. In that like, you know, every, everyone's got a dungeon synth project if you're in that scene. Yeah, um, very true. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I just, I find that really interesting, but I'm not sure why yet. <laughs> I have I do, an angle I, that I want to pick, tease out there but yeah i do like how decentralized it is so there's no i mean there's some quote-unquote dungeon synth labels um i know the the hegel gnome is coming out on cassette cassette next month um so there's that but it's still really decentralized like it's just you know people posting their their music online um and granted there's a very short shelf life with this as well like um, I noticed with the garden, I, I still get listens every day, but when I come out with a new release, it will definitely spike <laughs> hugely. It'll spike. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, after a week or so it's back to the normal, like, you know, five to 20 listens a day, nothing, you know, too crazy, but that's just on the band camp. But, uh, I like how decentralized it all is. And I wish metal would take a similar route as that, but metal, I think there's still a lot of rock music and metal um, on the uh, the surface level side where, you know, there's bands like there are, you know, rock and there's labels and all that where I, I wish it was more of like a DIY decentralized and little different factions would emerge um, like, it, you know, there is in Dungeon Synth. So it's one redeeming quality I view is like, Dungeon Synth def definitely has like an anarchist type of uh, um, mentality where it is very de decentralized. There is no uh, formal government or governing body such as yeah. record labels and I mean, PR companies and all that. Metal's very hierarchy focused as well. Like everyone's making their top 10, top 20, top 50 lists every day. And there'll be a churn of like the same group of artists within that in that everyone agrees on certain classics and then there's ones that are kind of in dispute sometimes ones are included or whatever but there's there's none of that in dungeon synth i know that it's not been around as long but also there's just none of that agreed canon of what what are, what are the classics that you should listen to as you know outside of like mortise and a few others whereas metal I, in fact more than other contemporary forms of music is so fixated on hierarchy i think 
Yeah. And I, I've, I've been just as guilty as this as any other like guy on the internet in the scene, but it's very focused on the top four, the big four, big three, the, the top 15 of black metal, whatever. And yeah, I think it does need to move past that a little bit and yeah, take a leaf out of Dungeon Simp's book as far as how it's kind of structured. Well, that's kind of how uh, Norwegian black metal started. Um, You know, that was a rejection of the order of, you know, death metal. Um, And, you know, granted, they did have record labels and they gained, you know, a lot of public attention. But still, it just started as a little cell of really fanatical individuals. And I think... That can happen again. Yeah, now they're deified as like they're deified as the best of that form, in that they are now part of a hierarchy. Not that they want it; it was imposed on them. But yeah, what I'm saying is that could happen again if it's decentralized and you know different little cells of you know expression are out there, whether it's local or you know it could be you know like I know, you know there's different groups on Facebook and all that where you know th- there are different types of niches out there um so people are able to share their their commonalities with each other um you know away from the the marketing and the big you know record labels and all that i i view that true honest expression really needs to you know a lot of time to reflect and reflect away from the spotlight um and that's what i like that's good about dungeon synth with i wish the quality was better in dungeon synth but um it, like if metals had the same type of um organization or deorganization or whatever as dungeon synth has there could be some really interesting things developing that you know everything's coming from left field all of a sudden so um that's what i would view as the ideal state for um how metal um should be with the um, the musicians and the bands and all that it should be uh, a lot of self-reflection away from the spotlight that way they're able to refine um their own expressions away from what is expected of them and you know a metal extreme metal um there's like the hierarchy as shelly was saying so you're expected to be like you know the hierarchy essentially and i my i view that we need to move away from that you know those legacy bands have been doing the same shit for fucking 30 years you know it's time to you know really focus on our own you know personal expressions and you know not what other people expect of us and decentralizing you know metal in that aspect i think would be uh more positive than negative well question for you i mean two questions i guess one First one I'll say is going to be, do you think it's damaging to bands to constantly be compared back to these classic artists? So like, do you think a new band that's starting out, this fact that they release their first song, right? Someone listens to it from a music review site and immediately they get said, well, you sound like this band, this band, this band, or this band from this classic thing. Do you think that's harmful or helpful? I I would say as descriptions um, for reviewers, it's definitely helpful. Um, That way the there's something that's like that expression already out there therefore that's why you're dropping that um into the conversation um but i i view like there's so many different ways we could approach extreme metal granted you know there's all the different subgenres and i think that can be expounded on way more than what currently exists but i don't think um the model would uh, result in you know commercial success as it was in like the 80s and 90s um i think the the glory days of mainstream consciousness of extreme metal has definitely passed us um 
but yeah, I, I, I don't view it as um, inherently bad, but when something is so much like something else, it's like, why bother? Um, it's not really yeah, I, authentic. I, I tend to agree because as, as someone that reviews a lot of music, I, I do find it useful, but I, I, I've tried to move away from comparing newer artists to particular bands like, oh, they sound like Entombed, me too. they sound like Out the Gates or whatever, um, and trying to say, oh, no, they, they borrow from, say, Swedish death metal with a particular mm -hmm. guitar tone or approach to DB punk or whatever, um, but they've mixed it with some other kind of current of tradition. Right. Um, but I think whilst that's not disparaging, and as Jason pointed out, it, it is utilitarian in that it... As a reviewer, you can immediately say something and the reader will know, oh, right, that band sounds like this. Because, right. You know, I know what that sounds like. But I think we kind of forget, and metal is particularly guilty of this in that it is kind of obsessed with its own lineage and its own history in a lot of ways. Yeah. We kind of forget that it didn't used to be normal to refer to bands through their influences. You would obviously say, oh, they, you know, they listen to Slayer or whatever. Right. But it would be very more sort of descriptive and very much more diving into what the identity of the band is. Well, that's and that's, that's released. Sorry, go on. Oh, so I was gonna say that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at is right there, is that because I, as someone who reviews music as well, I make an active effort not to spend too much of my review comparing bands to other bands. So I will obviously mention it at the start of the review because that's how you get the reader to oh okay this is what they're going to sound like. So say like okay this band sound yeah. You know, obvious influence from morbid angel vocalist sounds like blah blah but then you move on and then you actually focus on what that band is doing that actually makes them worth writing about but i've seen a lot of reviewers online who basically the whole point of their review is just making comparisons and like that's that's lazy journalism in my opinion and well, it's not it also at that point it becomes like showing off look how many bands i can spot in this album look how much i know about the history of death metal or whatever and whilst it's important as a reviewer to know your onions as far as like yeah what you're reviewing it, it just becomes you naming bands that you think this band sounds like right and to some extent that's just yeah it, it is a bit self-indulgent and also you need to pay respect to the the artwork theory you're reviewing right um for me like there's a difference between bands that are clearly drawing on the influences of the past and they're you know representing a continuity with it yes. and then there are bands that try to actively break with it and the reviews that get me really excited are kind of an intersection of the two in the they are clearly drawing on a tradition that I love, you know, in whatever field it is, whether it's, you know, classic death metal or Norwegian black metal or grindcore or whatever. Right. Um, they're also adding something that's so novel and so unexpected that I actually struggle to find the vocabulary to describe it. And those yeah. are the places that really get me excited is like, I literally don't know where to situate this. I don't know where to place it right. to describe it to someone else. And that's, you know, that's, well, that, that means there's something going on here that I need to pay attention to and give it yeah, several more listens before I can actually write something down. And those are the, the releases that really sort of get me going as far as like a, a critic goes. Me too. So the other part side of the question I was going to ask is, as these legacy bands slowly age out of performing, pass away, break up, that sort of thing, do you think there'll be a wave of new bands that become legacy bands, or do you think it's sort of metals like so rooted in that past that there'll never be another wave of bands as popular and famous as these current legends? So in my opinion, I think we are heading towards the decentralization that Jason was referring to earlier. And I think 
this has been a long time coming and the internet is probably the main factor here. And you see this across all arms of culture, not just metal, mm. but you know, you know, the internet has kind of destroyed primetime viewing on TV. It's destroyed kind of mass culture that we were familiar with in the late 20th century in a lot of ways. And this is kind of why you've got a huge burst of nostalgia over the last, you know, 10, 15 years across films, across uh, music, across TV, across popular culture in general. And mm-hmm. old school death metal is just kind of one particular arm of that. And I think as that kind of, as the older acts eventually do, as you say, like break up or retire or pass away or whatever, it will still take a monumental effort to kind of fill the zeitgeist with anything else because, you know, your Kisses and your Metallicas and Black Sabbaths will leave such a gaping hole. But I think metal is already undergoing this process of decentralization in that there are lots of local scenes, there are lots of semi-local scenes that kind of reach you know, regional or national kind of fame. But it's been a long time since a band broke out that could headline, you know, a Hellfest or a, or a Bloodstock in the UK or a Vacan that didn't form in the last, like, 30 or 40 years. Like, I think Mastodon, and they're quite old now, they're not a new band, but I think they're one of the more recent bands that could compete as far as popularity and headline a major right. festival. Whereas when you think in the 1990s, it would be... In the early 90s, it would be odd to see someone like Motley Crue headline a big metal festival, even though Motley Crue had only been going, you know, not much longer than 10 years at that point. They wouldn't be considered old by today's standards. Right. But by the 1990s, culture had moved on from the 80s. Hair metal was dead. Like, things were moving on. Culture moved at a much faster pace back then. Mm-hmm. And now it just seems much more homogenous and weird. Um, and I think... Yeah, sorry, to answer your question, that was quite a sort of bit of a tangent. No, no, to no, answer great, your question, great answer. I think we are moving towards that. And I think it will be a long time before a metal band grabs the zeitgeist in the same way that a Metallica did in terms of literally the infrastructure that surrounds them, the money that they can make, the pull that they will have at a festival or, you know, a major world tour or whatever. Right. It'll be a long time. I mean, Ghost, again, is probably one of the few exceptions that proves the rule. Uh, but generally speaking, we'll see much more dotted like local scenes that thrive but you don't see like a band break out in the same way that they used to in the past these local scenes will be very as again as jason said anarchic they'll thrive on their own and they'll have this churn of um fan-led kind of um what's the word support in that you know fans will still part with their cash and they'll still come to gigs but it won't be on the scale that allows these bands to quit their day jobs yeah and tour the world uh, so right. it, it depends what you mean by kind of the culture surviving because for me as a as like a a reviewer and someone that wants to see metal reach the standards of like artistry that i know it can that to me sounds great because it means we'll get this plethora and plurality of creativity going on but obviously you do need the commercial aspect if these bands are to export their art across the world you do need money behind it um and i don't think we'll see that in the near future once once kind of the older bands from the 70s 80s and 90s finally sort of throw in the towel right yeah legacy yeah, i mean that's how... legacy bands oh, um uh, the reason why i use that term legacy for that episode is because it's a loaded term so you have legacy systems uh, and it means they're essentially obsolete they're old and they need to be upgraded um you have legacy wealth um so it's you know generations prior that laid the foundation um for wealth call that 
legacy wealth and i i used the same type of mentality with legacy bands so um i i I do believe a lot of them have already overstayed their welcome but like you're talking about like we kind of deify these bands and doing so we make them stay in the game you know longer than you know perhaps they're welcome to be you know because a lot of these bands they just churn out records just to fucking tour and sling merch that's essentially it it's right they're saving up for their retirements so I, I definitely wanted to clarify on our usage of legacy, quote unquote. Um, it's not, you know, it's like, whoa, these guys are legendary. There's this huge legacy behind them and all that. No, it's a loaded term. And it means like they're, they're old dogs who can't learn new tricks. So um, I, I wanted to clarify on that. Um, and I, I do view, uh, like Shelly was saying, that you know, we probably won't ever see metal reach the heights that it has attained in the past, but that's also a good thing. We don't want metal to be mainstream. We want metal to be, you know, extreme. Um, and doing so, is, it shouldn't, you know, cater to the general population because most people view music as a form of personal expression. Uh, they're like adornment, like decoration for the personalities. Um, they don't really have the fanatical nature as you know extreme metal people have so where it's very personal to them and you know it's part of their own you know essence essentially so you know the the great subculture of extreme metal for instance where everyone's wearing black t-shirts because that's expected of them because they're so immersed into the the aesthetic so just wanted to chime in on the the legacy part um Sorry, Jason. The nightmare scenario for me. So I saw Black Sabbath back in 2017 in Leeds and, you know, it, it, fantastic gig. And it was the first time I saw Black Sabbath and I was thrilled to have the opportunity. But it was also like, you know, one of those moments where it's like, man, Ozzy is old. <laughs> and the nightmare scenario for me is that Dio world tour after he passed away where it's his hologram. Oh. And Again, I'm sort of like, you know, and they do the same with ABBA and things like that, even though ABBA aren't dead yet. But um, <laughs> it's like, are these people ever going to go away? Are we ever going to get over the shadow of some of these legendary acts that kind of overshadow culture, as it were? And yeah, it's probably a bit of low-hanging fruit to comment on the dystopian kind of angle of it. But also, it is, it is really fucking dystopian to me. And I'm just yeah. like, there's so many... It, it's like, for me, it's like a corporation where... Uh, the older employees aren't retiring and they're keeping the younger staff down from getting their promotions or whatever. They're occupying the jobs that should be, you know, everyone should be moving up the ladder. And they're less productive. They're less productive. They take long lunches and they roll in late yeah. and leave early. <laughs> Can't so they're not good for the organization. Computer, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically <laughs> the analogy I use is, is yeah, these, these bands... Not that they're actively holding down younger bands. It, the, the system, the process of gigging and PR and touring is. But at the same time, that's literally what's going on, is there are so many fantastic local younger bands out there who are have, doing really unique things, but they're not get, getting that audience because there is this homogenous blob of late 20th century culture that's just not, not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, no, great answer. Uh, so here's a slightly, I mean, this is probably the last topic because we're almost out of time, but what are your thoughts on AI music? Uh, do you see it as something that's a useful tool or do you see it as something that's dangerous to artistry itself? 
So I, I heard your uh, podcast with Brian Malone, and you posed the same question to him. Um, mm-hmm. And that was essentially, they, they view it as, you know, like uh, you should use every weapon in your arsenal, essentially, um, to refine your own expression. And I, I kind of disagree with that. Um, with, with the Garden Gnome, I do not use AI. I may have used an arpeggiator here and there um, just because I'm lazy. Um but with that, you know, I, I program the the scales that the arpeggiator is going to be utilizing and all that. So it's more authentic than having just like AI create um, the music for you. But I've heard um, like Beethoven's 10th or whatever um, try to be completed by AI and it completely drops the ball. Like there's there's an artificial aspect to um, artificial intelligence, obviously, but um, where it doesn't capture the, the soul of what it's generating. And I, and I do use uh, AI imaging for the garden gnome, and that's just a, a utility, essentially, because I do not want to pay an artist to come off the stupid gnome covers that I'm, that I'm utilizing. I just plug it into AI, and I'll... I'll manipulate like um, on a medieval norm gnome fornication. Um, I, I told AI to have gnomes give each other the Heimlich maneuver, so it looks like they're having butt sex. So, you know, there there is some creative ways you can you know try to work around the limitations of AI because um, obviously you can't tell AI, hey, create gnomes having butt sex. And there are so many filters in place where it won't allow you to do that. But you can tell it to, hey have gnomes do the Heimlich maneuver on each other and it kind of looks like they're having butt sex. So, um, but yeah, when it comes to the, there's still like an artificial nature to the covers and I, and I do try to spruce it up like with the, the, the communist, um, garden gnome album. I did the sickle and hammer really makes that image a lot better. And I, I just threw that on top of the, the nomad image that uh, AI had created but when it comes to music, I, this, we're not there yet with it being authentic. Not in classical music. I've heard a lot of um, AI-generated classical music, and it just is nothing to it. It just it knows you know chords and scales, and can kind of dissect what you know the the theory behind some of the compositions. But when it tries to recreate it, it's missing the the human soul. Um, but yeah, you can use AI as you know, like any uh, reference essentially. Um, but it should not be the expression in itself. That's my opinion on that. Well, my my two cents. It's coming at it from sort of the economic angle. Like when when metal when commercial interests kind of lost interest in metal after the early nineteen nineties, metal sustained itself and it's still going really strong today because there's like a population of metal that just keeps it going. We spend so much of our spare time. I mean, us, we're talking on a podcast in our free time um, to kind of, you know, discuss the culture and, you know, engage with the community. Bands like gigging, booking agents, musicians, uh, bloggers, podcasters, whatever. We all we all basically volunteer our labor for this and we volunteer our money. I, I spend a lot of money on new releases and stuff because I want to hear music that's made by people. And it kind of comes back to that point we were making about Dungeon Synth as well is, yeah, AI music might get to a point of sophistication where it is almost indiscernible, but that's not really going to put musicians out of business because they've been struggling 
like there's not a decade gone by since about the 1920s when musicians haven't been struggling for some reason whether it's radio whether it's cassettes whether it's recorded music whether it's record companies exploiting them there's always going to be a decade where musicians are exploited for one reason or another but there's always going to be these underground communities that give what they can and support each other and i think metal is one of those which is sort of stands out in that regard in that everyone is involved in metal is involved more than just a fan they create something or produce something for the community as well and it's a self-sustaining self-perpetuating thing and i think true. ai will find it really hard to invade those those ecosystems because uh, you know people want to hear something authentic they want to hear something that's not just a product or not just background music they want to hear an expression of uh, you know artistic intent and i think you know i don't want to predict the future because i'm i'm not um an ai expert but i think metal will be one of the most resistant subcultures to ai for that very reason because it is so uh focused on the um the expression of like something unique and so self-supporting uh mm. that i think yeah that, that it will just sort of immunize it against ai for for much longer than for other forms of music do you think music right, has right. been overvalued um like in the 80s and 90s where we were able to create you know like the behemoth mega million airs that metallica is um do you think it was overvalued and now it's just kind of plateauing to where it should be i think what's happening the mythos of the artist or the the you know the grand rock star has been overvalued i think artistry is 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 definitely undervalued i think that should be you know that should be a paid job just like any other but it's not because most artists have a day job but i think the mythos of the rock star the legend the you know bacchanalian intoxicated whatever that was definitely overvalued and it kind of bought into the over-the-top culture of the 80s and 90s and i think yeah we're, as we said we're still li living with the legacy of that today but i think ai is another interesting kind of challenge to what metal is but i think metal does need to move away from that rock star kind of hierarchy and into a more egalitarian anarchic kind of infrastructure also ai can only um repackage what has already been done um so the yes, algorithms yeah, it, it can't create something truly new um because mm -hmm. it doesn't have new as a reference it has what has been pre-existing yes yeah, so you can experiment around like yeah make you know a uh jazz fusion death metal rap project or something like that and it can create some approximation of that but when it comes to true general expression something that is new and unique ai is incapable of doing that because it's, it's limited by the the algorithms of the whatever it's referencing so it can't reference something that doesn't exist yet so um there is right. a limitation there as well um and I, I have a little anecdote. I know we might run over a little bit, but we're talking about how, well, Shelly was talking about how some musicians are essentially exploited um, and they, they're unable to make money, you know, substantial amounts of money to live on. Um, that happened during the, uh, the Great Depression of the things 1920s or 30s, around there. And uh, my uh, grandmother had remarried um, his name was Charlie Lamphere, and he was a jazz musician who played with Frank Sinatra, Mildred Bailey, and all that. 
but he lived through the uh, Great Depression as a musician, and it was money or music did not have any monetary value at all because you know back then it was hard just for people to get food therefore music you know there's no value to it when the times are tough and he lived through that um and he said it was the hardest you know point of his life um being a musician during the the great depression so a little chime in there we haven't reached that level where you know i still get the one dollar <laughs> donations on Bandcamp, so i'm making some money um but not uh we're definitely not to the extent of where musicians were during the great depression so just wanted to throw that little anecdote it's not as bad as it could be and honestly we shouldn't be in music for money anyway i know there are professional musicians that play in orchestras and session musicians and bands and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, they get really proficient at just playing music in general, not necessarily creating their own. But for the the, the creator, I, I definitely like the model of uh, how composers would, you know, they would write their music. And in a lot of instances, they never heard their symphonies performed during their lifetimes. So they wrote symphonies and that never got premiered um, or like Anton Bruckner premiered very late in his life where he started gaining, you know, a mainstream appeal in Vienna. So, you know, he went the majority of his life, you know, just refining um, his expression to such a great extent that by the time he started getting popular, he had so much great material that slowly started you know, making its way across the world. And I do like that model where you're forced to self-reflect and refine your own work and, you know, create music that has substantial meaning um, that transports people beyond the, the crass bottom line of reality. So um, I, I do like the classical music model of the composer um, that is always struggling in, you know, because through struggle, you're able, you're able to, gain a lot of uh, insight into yourself, you know, through, you know, overcoming obstacles and all that. So um, I do like that model. Um, do you have anything else, James? Yeah, just a final question that I ask everyone that comes on the show. Um, I'll ask you both, but you can answer whatever order you prefer. Uh, it's a hypothetical. If you were stranded on a desert island and you only had a solar-powered Discman and three CDs to listen to on repeat until you got rescued, what would you want to have with you? Uh, it's tough i'm sorry <laughs> so three cds so you can't have like a double album or a symphony cycle or something like that oh as long as if it's a double album in the same cassette uh, case that's fine like just three albums i guess doesn't matter how many cds between those That's a good question. Um, so with metal, um, definitely, I I would just choose the the first A, the B, and the C of the Morbid Angel. Uh, I'll keep it simple: the Abominations of Desolation, uh, Blessed Are the Sick, and Covenant. Nice, good choice. All right, uh, so I'm going to hit my three favorite genres. So, Tangerine Dream. Off the center right, Sisters of Mercy, First Class and Always. Nice. And Burzum, Vislicit Tars. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's fine. Um, awesome. 
Okay, I have one final question. This one's super easy. If people want to check out the website, listen to the podcast, follow on socials, what are the best places to do that for both Hate Meditations and Necropolis? Uh, literally, hatemeditations.com for the blog and uh, YouTube. The channel's also called Hate Meditations. Um, Spotify, I think it's just Necropolis Podcast, is it, Jason? Yeah, it's just called Necropolis on Spotify and Apple Music and all the other podcast platforms. Awesome. Well, that's that, simple as. There you go. Thank you so much for coming on the show to both of you. Um, it's honestly been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks, James, and all the best. And hope hope the the cave dweller music gains more prominence. It's been interesting watching it evolve over the years. So it sounds like you have a, you. a lot on your plate, a lot of different projects, and it's great to see um, you excelling at each of them. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks that, very yeah. much for having us on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Have a great day. And for everyone listening at home, just tune in next time. We'll have another guest for you.